Welcome back to another episode of Musically Inclined. My name is Colby Van Camp here with Jesse Kaiser and Ryan Hernandez. And today is kind of like the pièce de résistance of the show that we have done so far. Last week, we had just a fire episode with the Dragon Slayer, Benjamin Coach Wade uh, from Survivor. That was pretty freaking awesome. And uh, But today, today, it's hard to top Ben Wade. But I think we did. And uh, we got none other than two-time Grammy Award-winning composer, Christopher Tin, uh, you might know him because of just all the video games that he's done. I'm an avid Civ Five player, uh, and it's like, yeah, this is like a this is like a dream come true. I know all of my colleagues here are really excited for this. So, uh, Christopher, it's just a pleasure, man. Thank you for joining us today. Absolutely, good to uh, hang. So I, uh, we're just going to jump right into this, and there's so many things that we could ask you, and. Uh, as a journalist, because I'm actually getting my master's in mass communications. So I, I've been I've been told to ask the questions that I don't have the answer to. So that's kind of the uh, that's kind of where I'm aspiring to go with this today. So I'm just going to start out pretty generic and pretty simple. But uh, as a composer, you're a musician. You grew up in Northern California. Where where may I ask in Northern California? Because I was just in Northern California. Palo Alto, if you know where that is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The heart of Silicon Valley. Okay, perfect. So I was just in Susanville uh, in, in Northern California. Um, it's about an hour and a half northwest of Reno. Um, and so it's like it's like way up there. It's probably closer to Oregon uh, than, it, than it is to Nevada at that point. But uh, okay, so cool. So what was the moment where you knew that music was the pathway that you wanted to take? Or, or was that something that you always knew in yourself? I think I always knew that I wanted to take it, but it's it's a matter of like, when do you, you know, take the plunge, right? When do you say, okay, I'm going to really go for this? And maybe some of you guys can relate. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, as early as high school, I was really into, you know, writing music, playing music, um, just forming bands or jazz groups with my friends. I mean, just everything musical was was sort of like an addiction for me. <laughs> but it was just a question of like, can you make a living doing this? Can, you know, like, do you make the plunge or do you go into something more, sort of a well-trodden, you know, as your career path, right? Um, but in my case, I just kept looking for little signs that said, yes, this is what you're meant to do, you know? Um, and as those sort of like uh, indications accumulated over the years, I finally decided, let's go and let's let's go for it and be a composer. Awesome. So in that process, I mean, do you have any regrets? Would you do anything differently? Or has it just kind of been, here I am and I've loved it the entire way through? I mean, I have tons of regrets. I mean, there are lots of things I would have done differently. I mean, I was actually just talking to a group of students about this. Um, you know, I think that having regrets is actually a good sign because in a way, if you're not failing and screwing up constantly, it means you're not really pushing yourself and trying new things. And I think the key to a successful career in the music business is to constantly push yourself and try new things. Okay. No, that's that's a really great response. And it's so interesting that you said that because on our previous episode, we talked all about what it means to fail and what it means to be forged in the fire of failure, right? And so I, I think that's a I think that's a really important lesson that musicians are afraid to engage in, right? It's kind of like if I failed, then that means that they didn't like my music, or that means that I got a bad critique in a newspaper, or it's kind of like none of that matters, right? But what what matters is that you learned from the process of failing, right? Um, so I, I I think that's really great advice that kind of all these upper echelon musicians have really been harping on recently that we've talked to. So I love that you said that because it's uh, from, from a research perspective, right? It's kind of like everybody's saying the same thing. So that means that it's probably the right thing, <laughs> right? So it's not just one person out here in the middle of nowhere saying, hey, failing is good. And everybody's like, actually, no, it's not. <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's great. That's great advice. So I'm just going to open this up. Jesse, Ryan, what kind of questions do you have for Christopher while we've got him for the next hour? Yeah, so I kind of just wanted to ask. You know, I, I've seen I've seen uh, uh, some some interviews of yours, uh, uh, Christopher, and I've uh, noticed that like I find that a lot of times I think people like to start with Baba Yetu, and then they kind of go forward from there since that was kind of a big starting point for you in a lot of ways. But I kind of want to talk about like you know, kind of like your more like formative years, like kind of. What was it like being an undergraduate student and kind of like really getting into that, you know, process of like, okay, I'm going to try to do this and I'm really just, you know, figuring things out and just finding out what path I'm going to take here. And I think that's like a time in their life, a lot of our listeners 
find themselves in. So like, can you, can you describe like what that time of your life was like for you? Well, uh, I mean, I think, you know, by the time I was an undergrad, I was already sort of, you know, halfway deciding whether to go all the way in music or not, you know? Um, and, um, I think, uh, as an undergrad, what the, the most formative experiences for me were not necessarily those on my degree program. I mean, I studied at Stanford and I, I actually dual majored in, uh, music and English. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of what the music program has to offer at Stanford is actually more on the musicology side of things. It's not so much composition or, or performance based. Um, so to seek out a lot of the opportunities that I wanted to engage in, I either had to find student groups that were doing them sort of like as an extracurricular sort of thing, um, or I had to sort of form my own opportunities. Right. And the great thing about being at Stanford is like they, it's a university where, um, you know, if a student says they want to try something and there isn't something set up for that, that they will make it happen. I mean, it's a very, very supportive university. Um, and so I got into all sorts of stuff in college. I mean, so, you know, I, I, I was uh, the music director of an acapella group, for example, one that specifically sang a lot of African and African choral, Af African-American gospel music. Um, and I played in a Japanese taiko ensemble and I, you know, conducted musical theater productions and light opera productions. And, you know, I, I played in a jazz combo, you know, on my spare time, I organized little student music festivals, like world music festivals on campus and stuff like that. So I did a lot of things that just sort of like catered to that itch that I had for consuming music across the board. All the while I was hedging my bets by doing an English major and taking intro to law and, you know, other things like that. Right. <laughs> but eventually you have to decide what you want to do. Um, and eventually those, those application deadlines creep up on you and, you know, like you, it's time to really make a decision. Do I want to go to grad school? All that sort of stuff. And you apply. And I mean, in my case, it was just a matter of like, if I get into this program, I'm going to go for it as a musician. And if I don't get in, I'm not gonna, you know, it was as simple as that. Um, but I really do think there's something, there's something uh, joyous to be preserved about the college experience where you can like experience you can just do a lot of musical stuff and, and have it be pure and not like have a lot of pressure on, on achievement. I mean, yes, you know, you gotta, you've got your exams and your final recitals and dissertations and whatnot, but, um, you know, you're still in a learning environment and it's all about enriching yourself as a musician and being in college, it's truly the last time where you're going to have a big chunk of time to enrich yourself and not worry about like, producing at a professional level. And so anyone I talk to who's in college, I'm like, just, just live that up, right? Consume it all, do it all, play in every group you can find, write everything you can, you know, just get involved and do a lot. And then eventually all those skills that you arm yourself with in college become very useful when it's time to become a music professional. So mm -hmm. before Ryan gets into his question about musicology, because Ryan's kind of our resident musicologist, right? I, uh, I I took intro to world music and I said, cool, punch that ticket. Now I want to go over here to my like music theory class, um, and <laughs> which I regret. I regret in my undergrad. I wish I had paid more attention to uh, the, the world music as I learned more things as a professional. But um, so I have to ask because my wife is an English major and she did a master's of fine arts and poetry favorite writer i mean who who are you going for if you're going to sit down and pick up a book from a classic who are you going for from a classic author um boy i tend to like for example uh faulkner uh joyce mm. um i think jd salinger is always a fun read okay um who else um Hemingway. Um, it tends to be like a first half of the 20th century okay. know, authors around that era. Nice. Well, I totally exposed myself because I only knew Hemingway. So that's uh, that, that maybe <laughs> says that maybe says something terrible about my uh, my reading habits. But uh, no, that's great uh, because I just I, I think it's fascinating when people take a step in another direction while they're doing the thing that they want to do as well. And like you said, to hedge your bets. I know so many musicians who have tried to hedge their bets, right? And it's like not worked for them. Um, so, I, and I think it's interesting that you hedged your bets with, with English. Um, 
because everybody and their mom told my wife, don't hedge your bets with English. It's not go, go do like, do like a physical therapy degree or something, you know, <laughs> not, not English. Uh, so that's, that's fantastic. So, okay, Ryan, uh, the ethnomusicologist resident here for Musically Inclined, you can tee off my friend. Well, that's some high praise for me. I'm going to start with that. You give me far too much credit, my friend. <laughs> but Christopher, I have to know, um, because everyone knows you mostly for your work on civilization and other games that really focus on a multicultural aspect. Where did that itch start? Because you mentioned at Stanford that you played in a taiko ensemble, that you worked with African and African-American music. Where did that start? It probably started at Stanford, actually. I mean, once I got to campus, I, I was I, there was just a wealth of you know, student groups doing a lot of cool things. And one of my friends said, hey, you should audition for this acapella group that primarily specializes in world music. Um, and I did and I got in. I mean, you know, like as a tenor, you know, you're you'll basically get in most <laughs> choirs or ensembles you you try to audition for. Right. I'm not the best singer in the world, but I could, you know, hold my own. Um, and uh, I think that's where the earliest exposure came from, actually doing it and singing it. Um, and I mean, also like uh, this was the, this is sort of like the mid to late nineties. I mean, Peter Gabriel was very much a creative force at the time. The WOMAD festival was very popular. Um, you know, Paul Simon had released Graceland a few years ago, earlier. So, I mean, African music and the sounds of African music were sort of present in culture at the time. Um, and uh, I just, I just took to it, you know, I just thought it was fantastic. That's awesome. Um, Ryan, do you have a follow-up for him? I, I do, okay. yeah. So because um, most of your work centers around kind of that multicultural exploration, you know, it's got civilization, you've got albums that have um, Swahili, Japanese, and many other languages. Um, how would you say your compositional style flows around that whole idea of multiculturalism? Is that your main focus or is that just um, something you try to achieve through like is it is it a tool is it an end or is it a means i think of it more as a means i mean i you know i often wonder this like at what agency do i have to write music using other people's languages like what what authority do i have and the answer is very little um i mean i do like to collaborate with artists around the world i think that's a, a key part of my process the actual collaborative process and learning from people from different musical traditions. But uh, the end goal is not necessarily for me to step into their world, but more to find a meeting between my world, which is you know largely rooted in a Western classical jazz you know, tradition, um, and their world, and to find some common ground in a way. And I mean, that's why a lot of my projects aren't necessarily about you know, engaging with one one particular tradition or artist or anything. It's more about like a collection of people coming together to create something that's themed around a universal concept that relates to people, regardless of skin color, religion, or, or you know, background, language, anything. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I collaborate, I learn, I try to um, incorporate the things that I learn into, into future works, but um, in my world, it's all just kind of a big uh, mixing bowl that I throw it all into, stir it together, add my own sauce to it, and then hopefully whatever comes out is something new and original. Yeah, it really embodies that music being the universal language idea. I think so. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what like a lot of my early, early sort of studio albums were about that, like sort of this shared human experience that that transcends um, culture. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that helps that that sits in neatly in a way with my work on the civilization franchise. Right. I mean, it's all very pluralistic, as you mentioned. Um, and it's all very, a lot of it's rooted in history. I mean, much of my knowledge of history comes actually from my being an English major. You know, there's this survey of the history of, Eng of literature and, and, um, how that connects with trends in, in, you know, human philosophy and, 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 um, development. And, um, Civ in a way is the perfect franchise for me because it, it caters to all of my interests, um, and plays to my strengths. 
So I have to ask then what's, how do you go about studying different cultures and, and what, what do you do as a composer where, um, you, you study those different kinds of music and you incorporate them into your own, but you do it in an authentic way, right? In a, in a culturally responsive kind of way. What's, what's the influence for you and how do you go about studying that? Well, a lot of it comes from the people that I, I work with. Um, so I recently did a score for a game called Old World. And um, it was very Arabic influenced. And actually, I felt very insecure about writing this score going into it. So I actually called a friend of mine, um, Mina Shamali, who is, um, uh, he's, Aust- uh, he's Egyptian, oh boy, Egyptian Lebanese, I think. Uh, um, anyway, he lives <laughs> in Australia now. Great composer and, and singer and oud player and just all around musician and actually radio DJ as well. Um, and, uh, I was like, dude, I, I need help. Talk me through this. Like, uh, you know, I, I will always approach something that I don't know with very open ears. Um, and I just needed in a way his, his sort of like explanation of, of Arabic musical forms, because that, that was the thing that I had the hardest time researching online. Like a lot of, you can find a lot online to sort of talk you through things, but, Sometimes, especially if you're trying to Google things in a language that doesn't use, you know, the Latin alphabet, right? Um, it's hard to find things, right? It's hard sure. to find articles written about, you know, Arabic music that are actually not in Arabic. Um, so sometimes you have to find somebody to talk to. And and in this case, Mina gave me you know, hours and hours of, of, of like instruction and explaining forms and explaining terms. And, and, um, it really equipped me to go into the score. But that said, once I went into it, like a lot of what I did while being respectful over their tradition or trying to be respectful of their tradition, I left the more culturally authentic elements to my collaborators, including Mina. Awesome. No, that's, that's great. And I, and I love the, the way that you go about that because that, that's what brings that authenticity, right? Is that you go and you talk to somebody who actually knows something about the music. It's not you trying to interpret something that you read from somebody. You went, you you eliminated the middleman, right? And you just went and you spoke to the expert, which, which I mean, I think so many things in our lives and our worlds would be solved if we just eliminated the middleman and the guesswork and humbled ourselves and just spoke to somebody who knew something about it, right? And just picked up the phone and called somebody or went to the library and talked to an expert. Um, and it, there's there's a wisdom in that, which I greatly appreciate. Um, Jesse, so I was going to say, I, I, I know that I cut you off there momentarily and I apologize for that, but I wanted to get that because it was actually on my little sheet of questions. So it's like, ooh, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, but, but Jesse, I turn it over to you now. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I just kind of want to bounce off what's been said because I think it's a really, you know, rich stuff that we're talking about here and, you know, kind of bouncing off this, you know, and like the whole like talking with experts thing and eliminating the middleman, you know, I think that is a thing that like, especially for composers, like, I mean, it can even go with like learning to write for a new instrument, for example, for like composers who are just learning, you know, like a lot of times, you know, they might like go to a, you know, a textbook, like an orchestration book or something like that to learn. But it's just like, if you have a friend who's an oboe player, go talk to them, you know, cut that middleman out, you know, because the person who wrote that orchestration book probably wasn't an oboe player. And so it's just like, if you really want to get that, you know, real good knowledge about like an instrument or anything else for that matter, like anything, any of the stuff we've been talking about, just going and talking to someone is really the best way to do it. And for some reason, it's just something we don't think about. I don't know why. I don't know if some psychologists can like, you know, answer that question for me, but like, but it's just, it's just such a useful way to go about it. And like, and on the whole, uh, you know, the, the multicultural thing as well. Um, I, I've been watching a interview with, uh, uh, Steve Rice recently, uh, one that he did with, uh, Rebel Music Academy. And obviously he was talking about, obviously when he was posed with the question of Ghanaian influence and in drumming, uh, I remember he was talking about something I really, uh, took away from, uh, his answer on that because I, I found it really interesting, but he was talking about, you know, like you were talking, Christopher, about, you know, finding kind of like the middleman between, you know, my music and their music it's like he was talking about what can i find from ghanaian music that can travel because the ghanaians think of music very differently than we do you know for them you know the music that they play 
it's a part of life, you know, it's not a concert. So he's thinking to himself, okay, what can I take here from, what can I take from this culture here that can travel with me? And he was talking about like one of the things that he discovered, like a thing that can travel is like a musical form, like a cannon or a round, which he's exploited in many pieces of his. And he's, and he's talked about the fact that that is what can travel because a canon is a form that exists independently of any piece of music. It has nothing to do with row, row, row your boat. Like that's just something that was fit into that mold. But like the canon itself, he said, is an empty vessel and that's what can travel. And that is something that, you know, I can take with me and use in my music while still being, you know, respectful of the other culture at the same time. So yeah, I just, I thought that was really interesting. So, uh, yeah, interestingly, so I was having a conversation with Steve um, about a month ago. He was actually here uh, at my studio recording um, a new recording of clapping music. What actually. a flex. Um, just by the way, what what a flex. <laughs> it's just like yeah, Jesse's and, over I mean, here like and, my yeah. hero, Steve Reich. And you're like, yeah, I was chat. I had coffee with Steve the other day. It's all good. No, yeah, no, he, yeah, he, he's awesome. He was here for a day. Um, and, uh, just, you know, right, right behind me in this room, just recording and clapping music. And, um, you know, when you talk about like portability of musical ideas, I mean, he and, um, his longtime collaborator, Russell, um, uh, they, they, they made this iconic clapping music video together back in the, I think in the seventies or something. And they wanted to recreate it, um, for this, uh, this festival in Toronto that's going on, I think later this week, it's called the Sound Streams Festival. Anyway, so it's, it's airing in a few days. Um, I recorded him here at my studio. Uh, his whole thing about clapping music was that he and Russell were tired of lugging around gear from all these gigs that they were playing. And they're just like, <laughs> we need something that's actually portable and that will travel very easily without, you know, us sitting around in an air case surrounded by like instrument flight cases and stuff. So they... Mm-hmm. <laughs> with clapping music right so yeah no i i love that and so in in line with community and kind of community engagement i'm going to take a little bit of a sidestep um because my work in my masters about mass communications i took an entire class uh on community engaged scholarship and what it means to go from the community up when you engage in research and not from research down and like talking at the community but immersing yourself in the community to find the research that you can then use at an academic level. Um, but I thought it was really interesting because I was reading through your biography and trying to find some things to pull out and talk about and your album to shiver the sky. So it was, it was funded by a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign that raised $221,415. And it really put itself well above and beyond any other classical music crowdfunding attempts that have been undertaken. So what is it about your music that inspires such community engaged participation? Because I, I don't see a lot of composers being successful with that kind of, Hey, come fund my stuff. And people are like, Never, nah, <laughs> I'm good. Uh, but you said, hey, let's let's do this together. And and people showed up en masse to help you with that. So talk to me about kind of your your community engagement and how does your music speak to people in that way? Well, I think, you know, it starts with music that people um, want to actively listen to. I mean, if, you know, I think I'd have a much harder time doing this if, uh, if I wasn't writing with an audience in mind. And this sounds like such a basic thing, but a lot of contemporary classical composers simply don't. Um, you know, their music is about different things like challenging um, expectations, you know, inventing new sounds, inventing new forms, harmonies, timbres, ways to play the instrument. Um, and that's all well and good. Uh, they do that. And I do something different. I try to write sort of narrative experiences through music that people can relate to. And I don't think there's any shame in saying that I like to write music that people like to listen to. You know, I aim for that, right? And a lot of the ways that I go about things are crafted such that people will enjoy, get maximum enjoyment out of listening to my music. So I'm very service oriented in that, in that manner compared to some of my colleagues, maybe. Um, and then the other thing is that I actually do cultivate my fan base. I mean, I actually do respond to, I, I heart every comment, every, you know, not unpleasant comment <laughs> on YouTube, for example. It's actually not hard. In fact, I often see comments on YouTube that are like, is this actually a Christopher Tin comment, you know, hearting my comment? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, it's me. It's not a bot. It's me. It's actually, it doesn't take a ton of time out of my day or anything. It's always just nice to interact with my fans because if they're taking the time to write something nice, the least I can do is take a half a second to hit that heart button, right? Um, and I've been doing this for 15 years now, sort of cultivating my, my, my base. Um, 
I take very good care of my fans if I can, you know, I, I, I like interacting with them. I do these Kickstarters. I give them a lot of insight into my creative process. And I think they kind of like that. Um, I mean, I, I think it's, there's something to be said for, for that mentality. I think about 10 years ago, I, I read some article that was on some indie musician blog or something like that, that said, you only need 10,000 true fans or 1000 true fans or something like that to sustain a music career. Like if you have a thousand true, true fans who will buy, go to every show and buy every record and all that sort of stuff, like you have the, the foundation for a really solid music career. And I really took that to heart. And a lot of the sort of the top tier artists that I've, I've met or worked with or seen or even just read interviews of echo similar sentiments like that. Like I was reading an article that um, I think one of Taylor Swift's early managers said to her, OK, if you want to sell 500,000 CDs, you need to meet 500,000 people like mm. early on in her career. Yeah, told her that. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say, man, she's a bit of a role model for me, like the way she interacts with her fans and and takes care of them. I mean, she and a number of other artists are people who I, I really, really respect, um, not just in the way that they build a community, engage with the audience, but also musically as well. No, and I, and I think that's great because I'm I'm not a Swifty by by any stretch of the imagination, but I uh, Ryan Ryan totally is, uh, which is why oh, I kind I'm of, not. I, but oh. I do know that Taylor Swift is the reason that Midnight's crashed Spotify. You know, you don't uh, crash Spotify with a number of listeners if you don't take care of your fan base. No, and that's that's exactly the point, right? And I feel like so many composers, especially classical musicians, because there's this there's this snobbery that comes with, well, I'm an opera singer, right? Or I I compose highbrow music, right? Um, and it's kind of <sighs> like I'm not I'm not going to engage with the folks that support my music because that's beneath me in some way, which I just find astounding and there's no historical precedent for that i mean right like list was throwing like his handkerchiefs at women you know like he was he, the, the composers have always been engaged with their fans until we get to like the 20th century and then people stop um and and so this industrialism comes in and and there's some great things that come out of that but then also the attention to detail and and working with the folks that support you and patrons true patrons of what you do um has been lost and i, and I think that's really sad because there's a there's a key there that so many people seem to miss, um, especially as composers. Like I'm a composer, Jesse's a composer. I try to take care of the people that do work with me and, and in that kind of way. I know Jesse does as well. Um, but I, but I think it's also a testament, Christopher, to what you do that you're here on our podcast, right? I, I don't know a whole lot of like Grammy winning composers that would take an hour out of their really busy schedule to sit down with a couple of like college and ex-college students and, and like <laughs> sit down and have some fun for an hour. So that's a testament to you and the work that you do. What? That's what this podcast is? What? <laughs> <laughs> lie to me. I thought this was Associated Press. No, totally I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm happy with anyone, honestly, especially talking about music. I love to talk about music. So to go back to an earlier point that you made, um, you know, I think that the reason that a lot of contemporary classical composers have switched that, you know, switch to quote Milton Babbitt, who cares if you listen, you know, that, that switch, right. It's because frankly, they, nobody was listening to them in the first place. <laughs> and so now it's just like, well, okay, I got no fans to actually cultivate. So I'm just going to adopt this attitude. That's like, well, I don't care. I don't need you, you know, like uh, <laughs> anyone to hear my music or anything like that. I'm not mad. I'm not salty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and okay. To, to be fair, um, you know, actually, a lot of my friends are contemporary classical composer, and I really enjoy, um, you know, on an intellectual level what they do. And I learn from them a lot and I have huge respect for their talents. Um, but again, what gets wrapped up in this snobbery of like, oh, I don't need listeners. I don't need people to enjoy my music because my music is written for a higher form. Well, a lot of times those of us who do tend to write for an audience tend to get in the crosshairs as well, you know, like, and, and I think times are changing. I mean, I think there's, you know, like when I was a, a graduate student in London in like 1999, boy, some of the, the snobbery and the sneering that I got from, from some of the, uh, the undergraduates in particular at the Royal College of Music, I mean, it's just withering, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're pandering or you're selling out or you're doing this or come on, like, why are you using triads, you know, things like that. <laughs> Um, and I mean, 
you know, like, I don't beg on your music, dude. Like, what are you doing begging on mine? Like, chill out, right? I mean, we're all just composing in with the skills and the talents that we're given. And in my case, I happen to write good tunes every once in a while. And so that's the type of music that I try to compose. Mm. That's that's. Awesome. I always say that at the end of the day, we're all of us are just putting ink on a piece of paper. Like we're all equal at the end of the day when it comes down to it. It doesn't matter what's on the paper. At the end of the day, it's like, come on, dude, we're, we're all in the same boat here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ask ask any music historian. Puccini pandered, Verdi pandered, and they're the ones we study. Yeah, honestly, it's true. I mean, one of my my favorite case studies is actually Aaron Copeland, um, who started oh, yeah. out as a really serious modernist. I mean, if you've heard his organ symphony, like, holy crap, that's <laughs> unlistenable. I mean, I swear to God, man, it's it's <laughs> it's you you do not recognize it as Copeland at all. Um, but then he went to Mexico and, um, oh, he was exposed to music by a friend of his, I think. Um, forget. I need to read read up on this. But he came back and he wrote El Salon, Mexico, which is a really, really fun piece. Um, and, you know, it's not the most sophisticated in the w- thing in the world. There are elements of it that are a little hokey and all that. But man, it caught on like wildfire. Right. And all of his contemporaries were like, you're selling out, you know, we, we need to establish this great American post-war musical tradition. And you are, you know, not helping out with this because European modernism was very much, you know, on like the the dominant uh, artistic force at the time. Um, but he was just like, I need to pay the bills. Like literally, that's I think was, was the <laughs> issue with it. He realized that writing stuff like the Oregon Symphony just was not going to pay the bills. And so, um, you know, he started doing this and and basically writing, you know, crossover music in a way, right? Um, and he then became the Dean of American Composers. Um, <laughs> and so I tend to like people like composers like Copeland or Gershwin, for example, those who have a foot in another musical style, um, oftentimes vernacular, that bring it into the concert hall and meld it together and make something wonderful out of it that anyone can sort of identify with. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's like every composer's aspirations, but they get lost in the weeds, right? There's, there's a, there's either a necessity for like academics, academic writing that is impressed upon professors or mentors, or there's this feeling of, should I sell out? I feel like I'm selling out. Is it really quote unquote selling out? Um, and it's just like, find the middle, right? Right. We, we, we talked about this on a separate episode because we were talking about going to competition and going and like working over performance anxiety and the idea that, you know, when I go to a vocal competition, somebody's going to give me a 98, somebody's going to give me a 72, and then the other two judges are going to give me an 84 and an 87. Right. And it's kind of like, well, average the four numbers and that's where you actually are because the 98 says you're a god and you're not. The 72 says you're trash and you're not. So you're somewhere in the middle. Right. And I, and, and, I think moderation in all things and kind of the way that you you take into a philosophy of how you write and how you engage with people is a really important aspect of uh, just being a musician. So we're at the halfway point, which is nuts because I feel like we just sat down and started talking. Uh, so I've got a couple of quick just rattle off. I have to know, first of all, what's in the glass? Uh, are you a tea drinker? Are you a coffee drinker? What, what are we feeling these days in terms of what we're hydrating ourselves with? Or is it secretly water and I've just completely it's missed water. it? It's warm water. Yeah, like anything with caffeine, man, I'll take that. But I mean, this is just hot water. <laughs> oh, man, my uh, my vocal professor is like uh, nodding silently from the shadows with the the, the cup of hot water. Um, and then what, what will we find? I'm on nodding your- for him. Yeah, he's yeah. We, <laughs> Ryan and I both studied with the same guy. So uh, we're all nodding together harmoniously um, in, in triads. Right. Unlike what your British colleagues didn't want you to be writing. Um, so uh, what 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 will we find on your Spotify? If we're, if we're going to hack into your phone and see what you're listening to these days, what, what have you got queued up and what you listen to? Well, gosh, my four-year-old likes to take over my Spotify account. So you're going to hear a lot of, <laughs> um, some of, the thick of it. pretty good. Actually, there's some good stuff. Um, you know, boy, uh, classical piano playlist, some of my own music. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, the, the soundtrack to the, the kids show Bluey is fantastic. I don't know if any of your uh, listeners listen to or watch Bluey, but it is a hell of a, it's such a good show. It's such <laughs> a good show. It's so good. 
And, um, you know, the, uh, the composer of it is someone that I recently met online and, um, you know, he's just a great dude and great musician. So shout out to Joff Bush, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Okay. Very good. So now I'll, uh, I'll turn this back over to Ryan and Jesse and you guys can uh, continue on with the questions, your, your pressing burning questions. Well, I have one more quick question. Um, so because you are so entrenched in the civilization um, universe, I have to ask, do you play any of the civilization games? Do you get chosen to them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a while, though. I have to admit the last one, well, it's been years since I played, honestly. I mean, it's it's just like, it's hard to find the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I actually grew up playing Civ. Like, I I spent so much time playing the original Civ. So when I actually got invited to be a part of the franchise, I was losing my mind. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I do game, but not as much as I used to, sadly. Okay, so then go. So this is this this leads me to a two parter. So go to Civilization that you did play with, and then if you do get time to game, what are you dialing up? Oh, I think I usually played the Romans or someone like that. Mm. Um, if I do get time to game, uh, boy. Um, so, um, my wife likes to watch me play games. Um, and so that, yeah, marry, marry a woman who likes to watch you play games. <laughs> yes, it, it, it works out. Great. My wife does not RIP. Um, so <laughs> plays video games with me instead. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's great too. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. There you go. There you go. Um, so basically, um, the, uh, selection criteria for what game we're going to play has to also appeal to her need for wanting to watch something that has a good story in it, you know? Um, so like I said, it's been a while since we played anything. The last thing we probably played was last of us two. Mm. Um, but you know, it's like those naughty dog games. She always really, really liked because, uh, you know, they're fun. And like when you're playing them, I mean, they're like watching a movie, right? Yeah, most definitely. All right, Ryan and Jesse, what are you playing these days? Now I have to know, I have to know for everybody. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, yeah. Honestly, I don't play a lot of the games where where a story is involved. I'm kind of someone who likes to beat my high score type of thing, like to always improve. Um, I play I've I was born and bred in rhythm games. I played Guitar Hero growing up. I play Osu a lot nowadays, and I've been actually getting a lot better. I have my 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 tablet with my pen <laughs> off inside here. Um but yeah, I uh play lots of rhythm, different rhythm games. I love finding uh you know lots of smaller you know games made by you know just unknown creators who are just doing this for fun um i also play a lot of valorant that's like the big hype right now um but yeah those are uh, general go-tos and minecraft every so often sometimes it's really fun i like building my house you know i like getting really creative and then i get tired of it and i put it down for months so (laughs) the classic the og minecraft i i feel that all right ryan what are you playing I was a Pokemon kid back when, you know, 2000 was just rolling around. I'm still a Pokemon kid 24 years later. So I'm casually playing through Pokemon Violet right now. Ooh. Um, good music. Toby Fox knows what he's doing. Yeah, very good. Uh, and then for me, I'm a shill for NCAA 14. Are you kidding? I, I have to get my my college football in there because college football season's over. Uh, so as 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 many times as I can take the Kansas State Wildcats to a national championship that I know we will not get anytime soon. Uh, that's 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 what I got to do. So okay, now that we've established that, we've established our gaming preferences. Uh, <laughs> just I, I try to keep it light and loose, right? So. Uh, I loved your latest album, by the way, the the Lost Birds. It's a fire album. I was listening to some of it just today and trying to not think so academically about it and just sit down and enjoy it. And um, do you have a favorite track on the album? Because mine is uh, the Wild Swans. I think that's just a wonderful oh, track. Yeah. So I think a lot of people say that actually. A lot of people like that. It might actually be Thus in the Winter. Mm. Um, it's hard for me to say why. Um, I think a lot of a lot of my perception of of how the music is is tied into the process of creating it in a way like if the if the journey in writing such and such piece was um a happy one then i tend to look fondly on such piece mm. if it was rife with struggle then i tend to remember the struggle when i 
go back and listen to the piece. Um, so my my selections are not always the um, selections that listeners who weren't privy to the process would choose. Mm, no, that's fascinating. I love that because um, I I've only recorded two different albums and they're nothing like what you've recorded. But the uh, I I feel that too. Like I, but I think it's the opposite. I look back on the pieces that I really struggled with. And I'm like, you know what? I did those pieces. That's cool, and I'm proud of the fact that those were really hard pieces that I was able to to nail down per se. But no, I I, I think that's fascinating. Talk to us about Voces Eight. I mean, I write choral music. I I've listened to Voces Eight for. 10 years and it, it would be a dream come true just to have them sing any of my music, let alone make an album <laughs> of my music. So what, what's working with Voces 8 like? It's incredible. I mean, just absolutely incredible. They're not human. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> like the amount of, well, even just like the amount of stamina they have to oh, be yeah. able to keep their travel and performance and rehearsal schedule. Um, like they're, they're top-notch musicians, all of them. And it's w- amazing working with them because you don't actually have to do a lot. They sort of self-produce and self-correct constantly. It's not like, you know, you have to get back, you know, sit back and say, oh, okay, well, you know, this cutoff wasn't quite clean or this note was flat or whatever. They just have this, like, telepathic connection between the eight of them. And, and it just, they just run through things a few times, you know, like a couple of people say, Oh, I'm doing it like this. I'm doing it like this, you know, and they figure it out and then they do it. And then it's just flawless. And it's, it's frightening how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I will throw in a, a quick little, um, uh, plug. They are actually holding a, a composition competition now. Oh, cool. Uh, and I'm one of the, uh, the judges actually. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you've got a piece lying around that you want to submit of course. or any of your listeners do, I think the deadline is in May. Um, but uh, you can go to their website for more information. And if, I think, you know, the the prize is um, I think there's some sort of publication with their newly formed publishing company, but also you get Boches 8 recording your choral work and holy moly, right? Like yeah. that is you can't ask for a better group to do so. Mm. So, I mean, I encourage anyone listening to check it out. Okay. No, that's fascinating. Oh man. I'm, I'm going to jump on that so fast. Oh my goodness. That's uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, so I, then you said something that I thought was extremely profound and how they're almost telepathic. Have you listened to their album infinity by chance? Um, yeah. the, okay. The hear him not Smithur is like mm. my, my favorite piece of all time. I, I have a huge thing for like Icelandic culture. I'm a big Nordophile. I honeymooned in Iceland. I mean, I want to live in Iceland for a while and it's just, perfection the way that they sing this piece so for all of our listeners if you haven't heard that piece go freaking check it out it's it's on their album infinity you can't miss it and it's just it's like butter melting over the top of honey melting over more butter i don't know it's it's wild it's so good um <laughs> it's all right a julia child dish. it's it's a julia child's dish exactly um all right so ryan and jesse what else have you got for christopher in our final 15 minutes so I've got to go all the way back to Calling All Dawns because that was my first major introduction to your music outside of civilization. And when I tell you that, I think it was my sophomore or freshman year here actually at K-State, I had that on repeat every day. It, I, I lived and breathed it. Um, talk to me about your process of just assembling the message of that because I know that you mentioned your focus was on the human experience. What was the human experience you were trying to capture in Calling All Dons? Well, the, the structure of it is basically um, the life cycle, right? It's, it's grouped into three chapters, um, day, night, and dawn, which is sort of a metaphor for life, death, and rebirth in a way. Um, bear in mind, I was an English major, so, you know, we throw metaphors at the wall and just you know, like we're just constantly using them if we can. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of what I wanted to achieve with Calling All Dawns was um, taking the focus out of me just writing pieces that were African inspired and then broadening it to a more sort of global palette. And the way a lot of that took shape was to sort of think like, okay, who are we representing here? Who are we talking about? What, you know, like what, what cultures have done, you know, interesting things or, 
I know. And a lot of it was also driven also by, by vocal styles. I mean, you know, as I, as I'd mentioned before, I had a lot of exposure to world music at that time. And what I always enjoyed was the different sort of vocal traditions around the world, you know, out in the West, of course, we have our classical tradition and our pop traditions, but, um, in different parts of the world, like they, they have completely different ways of singing and their music reflects that. Um, and I just wanted to explore a little of that and find sort of a conceptual umbrella in which all of these explorations would make sense. And so this idea of creating something that was essentially a celebration of the human experience um, became the structural device that I used to pull all of this together. Mm. That's again, it's, this is as wow. a composer, this is, this is such a great thing to sit back and, and just listen to how other folks do this. Cause this is, this is wonderful. Um, Jesse, did, was that a hand up? Is, is that what you're going for? Cause if not, I definitely uh, have no, another question, but I, but I got a question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. So, yeah. Um, I don't want this to sound like a process question, but I kind of want to get your opinion on just like when it comes to the tools that you work with to write, to write your music What's, you know, because there's so much discussion on this and honestly, a lot of controversy on this. Like, what's, how do you, do you like to work in the computer to make your music? Do you like to use pencil and paper? What's your relationship with those two? And do you like, just, do you have any opinion on how it influences your workflow in any sort of way? I think your choice of tools definitely influences your workflow. Um, I mean, if anyone has tried um, writing at different instruments, even just like the the act of writing at a piano versus writing at a guitar. Like it just does change the way things happen. I mean, the physicality of the instrument that you're writing at, for example, will affect what you write. Like if you're writing at a guitar and you're writing a melody line, like a guitar solo or something like that, it, you know, guitars are built around fourths for the most part. And, you know, you're, you're, writing will tend to to have intervals that fit under the fingers on a on a fretboard whereas if you're at a keyboard you know you can perhaps write more chromatically you know you can try different other things i mean there you know your choice of tool will affect things so it's a matter of finding what tool has the least effect on your your musical process if you are slow writing pencil and paper but you are a lot faster working in a sequencer then in a way you want to work at a sequencer because you don't want the mechanics of your tool to get in the way of your pure musical thought, right? If you're great at writing pencil and paper, but are terrible using a computer, don't use a computer, do pencil and paper. I think your, your compositional process um, is not something that anyone should criticize. I think you can criticize people's end results, but you know, the tools that they use are unique to everyone and are, are personal in a way. And frankly, it should be, you know, kept intact because it's kind of a low blow, I think, to get to take a swipe at someone's creative process. I really think that's a low blow. Like creativity is such a precarious process to begin with. So that if you're if you're giving anyone sort of self-doubt that they're not sitting at a piano or that they are sitting at a piano or that they're using a notation program or a sequencer or like, you know, Ableton or, or whatever it is like, just back off, man. Like, <laughs> come on. Right. Like yeah. size the results if you need to criticize anything, but like tools are meant to aid people approaching problems in different capacities. And a lot of great music has been written because such and such composer has embraced a new tool. Mm -hmm. like I remember going back a bit when John Adams first started composing a lot of his loop based stuff. I think there was a big hubbub because there was some sort of behind the scenes video where in the background, there was some sequencer that he was using and people were like, Oh my God, he's using a sequencer. Oh my God. Like that's, that's so not what we classical, real classical composers do. But come on, he's like the most performed orchestral composer of the late 20th and probably early 21st century, right? Um, and, you know, he gets great results. So, so lay off, dude. Yeah. Mm. I'm glad you say that because I, I totally agree that it's a very low blow to criticize someone else's creative process. And I, I, I think especially now in our generation, because, you know, like I come from a generation of composers who were 
who grew up with computers don't know a world without computers. And so, you know, I think a lot of composers from previous generations, you know, like to talk about, you know, pencil and paper without really understanding most of the time that like, we are really savvy with computers. We grew up using them. Like I work tremendously fast in my notation software. And I'm just such a big fan, like the large, the amounts of large scale changes that I can do using a notation software, the type of stuff I couldn't even dream of doing with pencil and paper. I mean, I could draw a line, sure, but like I can just do it all in the thing. And I'm really quick with using it. And I've had people criticize me before, you know, just kind of like, oh, you, you, you should really give pencil and paper a try. It's like, I did give pencil and paper a try and I hated it. I hated how slow it was. Like I would just like sit down and just like be crafting this, you know, masterpiece thinking it was like 20 minutes long. And then I put it in the notation software. It's 30 seconds. <laughs> like, that was one thing I particularly hated about it. And so like, that's what I always thought, you know, cause that was a source of insecurity for me for a while until I realized I was like, you know what? My process is my process. If I'm better at the computer, then I'm going to use the computer. And ever since I decided to accept that, I haven't looked back because it's just a better way for me to do it. So yeah, I totally agree with your mindset there that don't criticize other people's <laughs> process. Just let them do what they want to do. So I have to know then, because I'm I'm ex Sibelius and uh, Jesse is ex Finale, and Ryan doesn't necessarily compose a lot of music, but when he does mess around with stuff, I know he uses MuseScore. And um, Jesse and I joined the Dark Side, and we're part of the Dora Bros now. We use Dorico. So uh, what's uh, what's your what's your go to notation software, or are you pencil and paper? Currently switching over to Dorico, actually. So I'll I'll join you. Um, Let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm actually ex-Finale, ex-Sibelius now. Um, I started on Finale, went to Sibelius for a good 20 years. Now I'm I'm leaving that. Um, Dorico has a lot of um, tools that work with my workflow. So, you know, you talk about pencil and paper, for example. I used to work out all my counterpoint pencil and paper, right? Um, nowadays, what I found is a lot faster for me is if I have a, a program that lets me, for example, highlight all five string parts and show them in one window, like a piano grid or something like that. So I can see them all together. And I'm not constantly having my eye scan jump between the, you know, first violins and down to the cellos and into the violas and remember remind myself, oh, you know, now we're reading alto clef, you know, like working out <laughs> counterpoint like that is a little slower then plopping them all into one little piano school and then seeing the lines move against each other, seeing the spacing of your voicings. Like, it's a great tool. And Dorico offers that now with one of their most recent updates. I can highlight an entire orchestra if I want and see all of their parts in one window overlaid upon each other. And that is a great way of working out counterpoint. Mm. That's fascinating because I'm at Dorco 3.5. I've had it for a while, so I don't I don't know if I have access to that. But that's that's fantastic. Yeah, RIP. I figured I didn't, but that's okay. Now you've got a reason to update. Yeah, well, yeah, and I, I don't, but I don't have the $400 to do it. So um, uh, unfortunately, but uh, okay, so we're winding down and I have two final questions for you. The, the first being, so a lot of musicians, myself included, have reached a point where they're, they just feel burned out and they feel the need to try different things. Have you ever reached that point? And if so, how did you work through it? I reached that point like every five years or so. Mm. <laughs> um, it's a constant. It's a constant. Again, if you're not reaching that point, you're not, you're not taking risks, right? You're not, you're not pushing yourself. Um, I, there's no easy solution to it, honestly. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you have to, you have to, be, you have to actually be very honest with yourself about who you are as a composer, right? And this goes back to an earlier conversation we had. Um, but, you know, sometimes people are pressured to write in a certain style or be a type of musician that is not necessarily true to their heart. Um, you know, if truly what you want to do is make chiptune music or something like that, if that's what you find yourself gravitating towards on your on your spare time, that's probably what you meant to you're meant to be doing, right? And I think that a lot of unhappiness comes from people denying what their instincts are telling them or their subconscious is telling them would be the best, most enjoyable way to spend their time as a musician. And instead trying to fit themselves into an expectation of what a musician should be like. Hopefully times are changing. I think, you know, there is this veneer of perfection in the classical music world that's 
coming down just a little bit, I think, and I hope that trend continues. Um, but, um, you know, I think you have to listen to yourself and be honest with yourself. Like, am I happy writing music in this style or is this just to appease my teachers? You know? Mm. No, that's, that's great. Um, yeah. So I was just, I was just parting thoughts. Go ahead. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I've heard a lot of differing opinions on this about the whole writing from your writing from your heart thing. And I do think that one thing I think that a lot of composers miss and a lot of musicians miss is that basically just the general idea that your audience is smart. If you write from your heart, they notice it. If you try to write something more intellectually, or if you try to write something that's like, oh yeah, this is what you want to hear. They smell that from a mile away. I think it's pretty safe to say, like, I've been blown away, you know, like every performance of my music, you know, talking with audience members afterwards, I'm always blown away at how smart the audience is, the things that they pick up on that maybe I didn't necessarily think they would have picked up on at all, yet they did, and they told me about it, and I didn't even have to tell them. So I think at the end of the day, writing from your heart is really your best bet and writing the music that you want to write, no matter what it is, because people connect with authenticity and people can tell when you're not being authentic. We just see that in other humans. We can tell, you know, if someone's not being authentic. So I think the best bet is just like, what do you want to do? Do that. That's your best bet. Don't overthink it. They'll smell a rat if you if you try to do if you try to like this is what you want to hear you know <laughs> yeah yep. totally totally feel that um, Ryan parting thoughts yeah I am just ooh the last hour I'm lost in the sauce man <laughs> you know the I think the best way I can sum it up is that wow music is both the ends and the means in my brain that's that's what this last hour has really got me swimming in now because it is the tool that captures the human experience like you said Christopher and that might just be my first tattoo i might just make that my first tattoo <laughs> but it's also the tool that you know like it's the tool that it's the, it's the means by which we do it but it's also the end of we want to do it yeah yeah it it really ca- captures a good place of where i'm at in my musical career right now awesome might as well yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. So my 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 parting question is that Ryan, Jesse, and I we all have things that we do in our spare time other than musicianship, right? You know, Ryan, um, Ryan has uh, Ryan. It's been a while since we've talked. So like, I, what are you doing in your spare time? I mean, just like just Looking, a hobby. Baking, reading books by Brene Brown. Ah, there we go. Okay, Jesse, spare time hobbies. Yeah, I mean, I I uh, on top of gaming, you know, I also I I collect lots of things. Uh, I have literally a collection of over forty decks of playing cards just sitting out of frame over there. Nice. And like, you know, just and I all board games and stuff. Like, I, I I like just collecting stuff, getting my hands on stuff. I think I'm a very hands on person. And I just like getting new things. Mm. Kinesthetic <laughs> so, learning. Yeah. 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 I'm always learning. Yeah. Learning new things. I think it's part of learning. You know, I just like getting new things, learning all about them. So yeah. Cool. I've just started astrophotography. I got a camera for Christmas and I, and I'm, I'm trying to, I just bought an equatorial mount as well. So now I can track across the sky and get really long exposures and try and take some pictures. Cause I feel a really deep connection as a musician, as a person with the sky and looking up and being like, what else is out there? You know, like, like, thousands of years ago, people were looking at that same constellation, right? And it hasn't moved. It hasn't done anything. It's, it's just fascinating. And I love that. And there's a, there's a, an existential crisis that it provides for me that I also personally appreciate and want to engage in. So there's that, but I have to ask you now, Christopher, as our parting question for the podcast, what's something that you're doing in your spare time that has nothing to do with music? Well, clearly none of you have four-year-olds because you have spare time. So, I mean, I I think in my case, like, honestly, I love being a dad. Um, It's my new hobby um, and my my new primary focus in life in a way. Um, And, uh, you know, I I spend a lot of time reading to my kid, taking her to the beach, giving her life experience, you know, just, just, you know, passing down what I know in a way. that's sort of taken a priority in my life. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to take the boring answer and say, raising a kid, man, it's just like, it's a whole full, full full-time job. I mean, well, I was, I was going to say, it's like, 
uh, now I feel stupid for saying astrophotography because you've you've got like the apex answer, right? And you're like, I'm a dad. I'm a dad. Hobie and I have no clue. He's got influence in his hobbies. (laughs) Hobie and I, you know, we spent time in the elementary classroom. That's nothing compared to the 24-hour job of parenting. Yeah. No. Most definitely. It's nuts. Most definitely. It's wild, but it's rewarding. And and that's why I love it. I'm sure. Well, hey, thank you so much, Christopher. This has been just a monumental experience for us. And uh, I I just can't appreciate it enough that you took time out of your absurdly busy schedule to come and sit down and chat with us. By the way, to all of our listeners, in case you haven't done it already, go check us out on Twitter, uh, Twitter. Uh, Instagram, there we go, and Facebook. You can do it at Muse Inc. Pod, M U S I N C P O D, musically inclined the podcast. And then we're obviously, if you're listening to us, you found us because we're on Spotify, anchor.fm, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're kind of all over the place. So really appreciate it. Christopher, thanks so much again. Have a great rest of your day. Looking forward to the latest music that you'll be dropping. And, and maybe sometime in the distant future, we can have you back on the show again and, and break down new projects that you're working on. But without further ado, my name is Colby Van Camp here with Jesse Kaiser and Ryan Hernandez. And you've been listening to Musically Inclined. <laughs>